Hi, Be The Bridge community. What you're about to listen to is a Facebook Live interview that we had in the past that we thought that would be helpful for this season in our country. So I want you to sit back and listen because this information could be helpful and hopeful. And so as we always say, we want you to listen, we want you to learn, we want you to lament, and we want you to leverage. So enjoy. You're listening to Sounds of Justice, a Be The Bridge podcast. My name is Tasha Morrison, and I am the founder and also the CEO of Be The Bridge. And so what we're doing is we want to highlight um, people from our Be The Bridge community that are authors that have written books um, that are in line with the mission and vision of Be The Bridge. And so I met Daniel um, probably maybe two years ago at a um, conference up at North Park University. Um, met him there and, you know, I, I knew a little bit of him because of a blog that he wrote um, several years ago that we were using when we first started to be the bridge group. Um, a friend of mine named Judy had found this um, blog that Daniel had written and so we started using that. So I knew about him and just, just so glad to have him on. But let me just let you know a little bit about Daniel. He is um, a senior pastor at River City Community Church. Um, this is a, a church that has a vision of being multi-ethnic community of Jesus followers who transformed the city of Chicago through worship, uh, reconciliation, and neighborhood development. He started the church in 2003. Um, he also wanted to demonstrate compassion and alleviate, alleviating poverty um, in the expressions of the kingdom of God. God. Prior to this, Daniel actually worked at um, Willow Creek Community Church um, for five years in Texas. So he led up their young adult ministry. So he has a, a BS in business from Purdue University. A MA and Masters of Arts in Biblical Studies from Moody um, Theological and a Certificate in Faith-Based Community Development from Harvard Divinity School and a DM. Good gracious, Daniel, you've been doing some work, buddy. <laughs> and a um, Doctor in Ministry from Northern Theological um, Seminary. And so he has written a pair of books, um, 10 to 10 Life to the Fullest, in wide awake with university um, press. He's married and he has two children and we, his children graced us with their presence before we entered, um, before we went live. I could see him, but he couldn't see me. And his kids were, boy, they were getting the best of him. They were attacking me. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. But um, so we're glad to have you guys here tonight. And Daniel, we're just going to go ahead and get started. Um, before we get started, we have another person that's on the screen. Um, we have Elizabeth. Hi. Um, Elizabeth is coming to us live from Kansas City, Missouri. I got it right, right? Yeah, you did. <laughs> I always try to put her in Kansas, and she is not in Kansas. She's in Missouri. And Elizabeth is one of our community um um, managers, um, community engagement managers um, for Be The Bridge. She's working on several projects with us. She also oversees, um, along with um, several other people, but she's kind of helping organize the Facebook group. Um, so if you see her name a lot, she's done a lot of stuff with that. And then in this work of bridge building, you know, especially with me being an African-American, um, I try to have, you know, people of different ethnicities. I have to have people of different ethnicities around me getting input from different people. And especially Elizabeth has done a lot of work as it re relates to um, understanding white identity um, and what it means to be white. And she and Stephanie um, Nannan also wrote the Whiteness 101. So if you're wondering why, why is Elizabeth on there? Elizabeth is on here because she's done some work and we're going to tell you about some things that we're going to be doing this summer around the Whiteness 101. So Daniel, are you ready for the Be The Bridge community? Um, we're going to open it up to you guys at the end. Um, make sure you're posting and letting people know we are live. Um, I think this is going to be a great 
interview and we don't want people to miss it. We will share it in the group once we're finished. We'll share it in our groups. Um, but we want people to hear what Daniel has to say. He's done a lot of work with this. Um, Daniel, if you can, if you can just tell us, if I miss anything from your bio or said anything wrong, you can correct that. Um, but if you can just tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey to writing this book. What what made you think about writing Wide Awake? What what was the journey um, to you writing this book? Well, like most questions like that, there's could be a really long answer, but I'll try to give a, <laughs> a short and succinct answer. Um, you, you know, most of my life, unfortunately, I was brought face to face with opportunities to think about these things and um, just chose not to, lived in denial, um, dismissed them. And so I really lament that it took me so long to begin to engage with this. Um, mm -hmm. It was really kind of innocuous where it began. I was working at Willow Creek. I was in my young 20s, uh, you know, at the time was one of the most influential white kind of evangelical churches in the country. Um, but I still wasn't thinking about this stuff. And uh, it's it started with it was weddings was one of the things that was really scary for me as a young minister, right? It's like, you can kind of mess a lot of things up and get away with it, but you can't do a wedding. So that was always a very scary thing. So the fourth or fifth wedding I did was um, the first um, intercultural wedding. And uh, it was a white uh, bridesmaid and uh, the groom was from India. And he told me that I was going to get a deep dive into Indian culture, especially at the uh, rehearsal dinner the night before. And so I was actually looking forward to that. And, um, it was indeed, you know, the food, the sights, the smells was all, you know, very amazing to me. They even had this um, kind of this dance. I think it was called the Dandia dance where it was a stick dance and I got no rhythm. It's hard to get me out on the dance floor. But on this day, I even I was out there with that. And so the whole thing was just very, um, a very, a very amazing experience. So I went up to him and gave what I meant to be a compliment. I said, man, I am so jealous of you. You know, as a white person, I obviously don't have any culture, but I'm so jealous of the fact that you've got so much culture. And thank you for inviting me in. But instead of hearing that as a compliment, um, he stopped and on the night before his wedding got very serious. And he rarely did this. I especially wasn't expecting it on the night before his wedding. But he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, Daniel, not only do you have a culture, but when your culture comes in contact with other cultures, it wins almost every single time. Please learn about your culture. And then headed off back out on the dance floor and kind of left me with kind of a door open to a whole world that I needed to enter but didn't even really know how to begin to. And though that wasn't the first time something like that probably ever happened, it was the first time that God really used it to like seize the moment and say, yeah, I, I, there's a whole reality happening around me that I don't understand. And it's kind of wrapped up in this idea of there's this white culture that I'm unaware of. And then the power dynamics felt scary and even offensive to me that, you know, when my culture comes in contact with others, it always wins. But that was really, I think I was 24 when that happened. And so that's really where the journey of this began. And so, you know, I don't know which part you want to talk about. There was kind of a five, six year journey when I was at Willow on that. Um, there was kind of a deepening of my own kind of theology in the sense that even though I had grown up, a pastor's kid growing up in Bible believing settings, I'd never developed a theological lens for thinking about this stuff. Um, and then as I eventually kind of transitioned out of Willow and planted a church, there just have consistently been white folks. Well, there've been people of every cultural background. So trying to have a theological frame for understanding cultural identity has been important, but then understanding that there's something kind of peculiar about being white and trying to understand that because you're doing it against the backdrop of white American culture that makes it kind of more important, but also more complicated. So, um, so, so that's what I was working on. The honest truth is I promised God I would never write a book on race. So um, this wasn't my intention. Um, right. um, I thought the last, you know, when I started River City, almost every book I could find on race was written by a white male. And so the last thing I wanted to do is perpetuate this problem. So I literally did promise God I never would. And so it wasn't until there was a consistent chorus of kind of mentors of color in my life who continued to say, no, there is a place for white people to talk to white people about their own journey and kind of drew that out. And even still, it was only it was it was through a series of those kind of conversations where I began to since maybe God was leading a different direction. But I still feel very sheepish about the whole thing. I'm not like I'm not seeing myself as, you know, God's answer to what white people need to do on something. I'm just trying to kind of share some of my story and what I've learned and hope that it's helpful as part of the larger kind of movement that God's doing. And when you when you first started into when he said, you know, um, not only do you have a culture, but when your culture intersects with other culture, it dominates. Yeah. So the journey when you when you because this is the thing that I realize when I'm uh, with going in and doing trainings within churches and organizations, um, a lot of white people feel like they don't have a culture. And so why? 
why do we why um, do white people have that thought process that there's no culture or or ethnic identity? Like even when we talk about ethnicities, um, you know, a lot of times white people don't feel like there's an ethnicity. Can you just speak a little bit into that? I know that's a deep question. Um, and there's a lot of layers with that, but just in your best way, um, how would you answer that? Like, and, and, and just maybe the work that you did after he said that, cause I know it had you thinking, but from that thinking to writing your blog and exploring what it meant to be white, um, how did you come about that? Well, I, I do think when, when you're white in America, we're talking about this in an American context, right? So I think that there is a global reality of white supremacy that's also worth discussing, but I'm talking about it kind of in the North American context here. Um, I think there's unchosen ignorance and there's chosen ignorance. Right? Okay. So, so I think to some degree, it is not our fault. Like to grow up white in this country is to be part of an active campaign to not address these things, right? I mean, there actually is literally a rewritten history, right? That does not tell the truth, right? I mean, this, it, it's unfair to even call it a sanitized history because that doesn't go far enough. It's a, it's a, it's an incorrect, it's an untrue history, right? Uh, we're told to think of Thanksgiving as native folks and white folks happily sitting around a picnic table celebrating the, the discovery of this new world, right? I mean, it just couldn't be further from the truth of the genocide that actually happened, right? We're taught to think about slavery as like somehow white, Christians providing a gift for black people who came over here, right? And that there was these happy plantations, right? I mean, it, it, it's so it's it's not it's not sanitized. It's just literally untrue, right? So the horrors that are kind of behind the creation of the system of race are so terrible that there's an active campaign, I think, to hide those, right? So, um, so there's going to be a starting point that's just unchosen ignorance. But then when you start to see that that's not true and that experience after experience and friendships and the media and the, and the broader world shows us that's not true, then I think. We, the terms I use, they, they seem similar but different. Like I feel like I started in full-fledged denial, which I think denial is when you just don't want to know the truth. Yeah. And then I think it went to defensive, right? Like I think defensive is when you think something's out there, but you're still defending your turf, defending your territory. And when he told me that, that's this is not much progress to make, but I went from denial to defensive, right? So I was starting to realize something was there, but my posture initially was not one of learning and humility. It was one of defending that can't be right, that my culture always wins. It can't be right that all white people can be lumped in, right? So it was a very defensive place that I started before really coming to a place of kind of a more humble and honest learning process. Okay. So even with you and this, you started out with this level of, denial, defensive, what we kind of corn today is like fragility, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, what made you, like, what was your breakthrough? Because there's people that are listening now and maybe they're in this denial or maybe there's family members or friends that they have that are in this place of denial. Um, what type of work did you have to get to do on yourself an introspection on yourself to get to this point where you were kind of able to cross this barrier and become, um, allow someone to teach you or um, get to this place of hum humility where you can listen. At yeah. what point, you know, was it someone that helped you, came along with you? Was it a, a book that you read or a TV show? You know, what, what helped you, um, you kind of conquer that barrier? Yeah, this is where I'm glad whenever I can talk about this and it, from a Christian perspective, because I'm doing a lot of stuff in the business realm, too, and I can't really talk about theology <laughs> there. But the honest truth is it was theology that shifted things for me um, as I started to wrestle, which is the very basic claim of Jesus Christ, that he's come to bring a new kingdom, right? That we're to pray that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I start to get kind of pulled into the sweeping nature of what it means to bear allegiance to the king of kings, um, it's when it's becoming apparent to me that white Christians experience the world differently. Than Christians of color do, right? And as I went on this journey, defensively initially, but as I went on this journey, I started to realize, uh, oh no, the, the, whatever the issue is, by and large, there's always exceptions. By and large, white Christians have one experience of it, and Christians of color, especially the more marginalized Christians of color, have a completely different experience of it. And so I actually started to be deeply rattled of saying, I think it's possible that I don't actually have any idea what's happening around me. Mm -hmm. That like I live in kind of an altered reality that's been. Um, sanitized for, you know, my experience of it. And that if, if I, th that's where this theme of kind of the biblical theme of help me go from blindness to sight became very important for me, where I started to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm blind. I literally can't see the world around me. And if I don't listen to 
the, 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 the church, the, the Christians of color in the church and, and, and help beg them to help me see the world as it is. I'm just going to stay in this like totally illusionary kind of reality. And it really did hit that deep for me. Um, and then there's a long process of how to start filling that in. But there was a fundamental shift for me that if Jesus Christ is coming to bring his kingdom on earth, that it must have something to do with all the injustice and racism we're seeing. And that the white church was just clearly not capable of helping me in that journey. Mm-hmm. And then um, I want to talk a little bit about, like, I know, like, even us having this conversation um, this being a live broadcast, when you start having talks like this, I know on the other side of this, people will tell you that you hate your race or that you, um, you know, you're self-hating and this is not true. Um, and I know you've had to deal with a lot of that from um, your 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 white brothers and sisters. And I know you did a, um, talk to me a little bit, you did a CNN interview and some years ago, I, I forget what was happening. I think it was some protests. I can't remember which yeah. situation um, or hashtag it was related to. But just tell me a little bit about that that kind of put you on this national um, platform in a sense that something that you didn't ask for, you were just praying and what you prayed um, brought controversy. Mm-hmm. Well, there's the, there's these police brutality cases all up and down the country, right? So one of the big ones in Chicago was Laquan McDonald, who was um, was sh- was shot, you know, multiple times unnecessarily, and then what made it even worse is in this case in Chicago it was covered up for, for a long period of time. So when it finally came out to the news, it was kind of yeah, it was it was just a devastating reality. Um, it really shook the whole city of Chicago. So. Um, uh, so a group of African-American pastors from the South Side organized a prayer rally in front of the Chicago Police Department, um, which is on the South Side. And um, there was just a series of prayers asking for God's kind of judgment, repentance, et cetera. And so they invited me to be part of that. Um, and so we each had an assigned topic. So mine was repentance. And so within the, the prayer of repentance, I included kind of repentance for the white complicity at large and the white church's complicity within kind of the state of race. And so you know, it, it, it very much was an exercise in privilege because there was multiple pastors who were not white who prayed that didn't get media attention, but CNN jumped onto me doing it from a white perspective. And so, you know, I asked my kind of pastor friends if I should take this and they said, Hey, you're going to get on there and say the same thing we say behind the pulpit every single Sunday, but this is how the world works. Right. So we do want you to step into that space and name this why repentance is important. So um, going into it, I was really, I felt really clear from the Holy spirit that, it was important to really emphasize the repentance piece, you know, and I was having flashbacks in my assemblies of God growing up days where like the apex of life was to get on national TV and talk about Jesus. Right. If like you could get on there and talk. So it was really a unique opportunity for seven minutes. I got to be a Brooke Baldwin and talk about why repentance is so important and how race is a big part of that, especially for those of us who are white. So I was expecting to come off, you know, and everybody being like, wow, this is a national opportunity for repentance. And I didn't get out of the studio and I had, hundreds of messages, hate messages from white Christians who were just furious that um, I had tied repentance to racism. And it wasn't new to have pushback within the white community, but it was, as you're kind of point, it was just on a much larger scale. And it was actually on a much crueler scale than I've ever experienced it before. We had threats for just weeks on end. In fact, in a strange twist of irony, we had to have the Chicago police come undercover to church the next week because I had talked about the Chicago police cover up, you know, um, because there, they, enough of the threats had been seen as kind of verifiable, you know. And so it, it was just, it was a very sober thing. I felt like there was a tiny, tiny glimpse, you know, of seeing what, it's like to be what you experience every day, right? To like just sense the hatred that lives under the surface in so many pockets. And the fact that it happened from church folks was, you know, particularly demoralizing, but it was certainly a wake up call. Why do you think we have this pushback? Because when we look at the word of God and we look at our, um, hopefully our theological framework has space to understand that racism is a sin and sin should be repented of. So what was their argument to tie, um, you know, racism and repentance together? I, 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 for me, for the life of me, I can't understand why anyone would push against that. I mean, we understand what, what you know, where that's coming from. But I would just want to hear your perspective on, you know, as a as a white person, the, the pushback and, and not tying um, repentance to the sin of racism. Yeah, uh, I think it's an important question. It's when I'm in churches, it's one of the ones I am actually trying to address. I think I address, I think when it comes, so if I can kind of go like 
biblical reflection for a moment. I think when it comes to thinking about race, white Christians have a very Pharisaical kind of approach to it. You know, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm often drawn to that Luke 5 passage where Levi becomes a Christian, Levi the tax collector, Jesus calls him to join, and Levi has all of his friends come over, and um, Jesus is with them, and the Pharisees come and they say, why does Jesus spend time with the sinners, right? And Jesus famously says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but sick. You know, I've not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. And I think what, what blew the minds of the Pharisees is the only way they understood how to organize themselves and to evaluate whether they're being successful is to say, there's good things you do as a Pharisee and there's bad things you don't do, right? So you keep the laws to be in, you don't break the laws. That's what makes us who we are, right? Um, and Jesus undercut that. He said, it's not about what you do and don't do. Of course, that's important, right? But he undercut it. He said, it's not really about what you do and don't do, right? It's about a disease. Mm. It's about a sickness. And until you can see yourself as sick, you can actually be sick and do good deeds or you can be sick and do bad deeds. But that's just not what's most important, the deed, right? What's most important is under, understanding this underlying sickness, right? I right. think until white Christians understand that racism is primarily disease more than it is a, a, an action point of what I'm doing or not doing, so what white Christians do is actually the same thing that white secular folks do. They define racism too narrowly. They say mm-hmm. racism is when an individual person does something really cruel to a person of color, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe says something politically incorrect on a softer end. And therefore woke or not racist is to not do bad things, to not say bad things, to not align yourself with the people who do bad things. And so the implication, like if you're if you're trying to prove everybody that you're woke or that you're on the right side, and then somebody like me comes and says we need to repent, it actually is seen as a threat, right? Like like you're it's an ups, it's an upsetting of the very way that they organize, the way that they view it. And so what I'm trying to say is I'm not the superior one pointing my finger at you saying you're the inferior one. I'm saying you and I both read this sick air that's been part of the foundation of our country that in its very atmosphere says. Whiteness is more valuable. Blackness is least valuable. Everybody else has to find their human worth somewhere within that spectrum. That's poisonous. It's ugly. It's demonic. It's sick. Mm -hmm. And it's in the air we breathe. It don't matter what you say, how politically correct you are or not. The minute you walk back out this room, right, we're all hearing the message a thousand different ways around Mm -hmm. the messages of superiority and inferiority and where human worth comes from. And I think as long as we're trying to measure Am I politically correct enough or am I woke enough or am I on the right side of my line? We've, we've already lost the game, right? We're, we're being very pharisaical and saying who's in and who's out. And I think that happens a lot in both secondary and Christian spaces. And so the repentance language, I think, is even more important than ever because it, it, it realigns us with the gospel, right? Where it's like you don't prove that you're a woke white person. You come to the gospel and say, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I breathed in a devastating toxin in this thing called race. And you're the only one who can help me out of this thing. And it's only then that you can authentically live in a humble posture. Otherwise there's no chance. You'll just keep trying to prove to everybody that you're woker than other white people. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've heard you say twice, um, when you, you said that you didn't start out trying to write a book because the books that you were read about race had only been from white people, you know, before. And then you said when it was this time to do this prayer, um, you, I think you asked um, some people of color to see if you should do that. And so I want, I want the process. I've heard you say that twice where you kind of wanted permission from people of color to speak on this. Um, I want to know why and what can we learn um, as a community from, you know, how you've taken the lead on that. Like, wh- why are you getting permission from people of color um, to speak? Let's talk a little bit about that. So my fundamental belief really is that to be white in this is to just have really no clue of how the world really works along racial lines. The blindness to sight thing, I think, is really important. I think it's also one of the primary biblical motifs, right? Like, whether it's the Apostle Paul needing Ananias to you know take the scales off, or whether it's Peter needing Cornelius before he can see the gospel clearly. I just think to be white and be serious about this is to embrace the fact that I'm blind and needing to see, and I need the help of my my mentors and friends who who will walk with. So I, I don't feel like that used to be true of me, and now I've like somehow graduated. Like I very much feel just as much now that that's what's true. Like I can't see clearly, so that doesn't invalidate me as a human being. It doesn't mean that I can't participate at some level, but it always means I can't see clearly, right? So I will never say yes to a speaking invitation. I'll never say yes to speaking to stepping into an environment. I I don't do anything in my own church without running it past the elders and staff who see in ways I can't see, right? So I just would, even to this day, I would never trust myself to rely on my own instincts on anything that has to do with 
race or impacting people who are affected by race. So I'm humbled by the fact that there are communities of color who welcome me into those circles. Um, but I follow their lead always. There's no circle that I don't do that, including my own church. And so it's a little bit of a weird thing. Like technically I have the pastor, you know, the title of lead pastor, senior pastor, or whatever, but my whole crew knows it's like, we're doing this together. And I would never try to do something that wasn't run past them and had their total alignment on and permission on really. I mean, I just, I just, I would never trust my own instincts. And so Elizabeth is on here and I wanted just to, um, I know she has a question for you. So I wanted her to have an opportunity um, to, to ask you a question. Um, she's done a lot of work with our, um, our whiteness um, one-on-one and dealing with um, white culture, white fragility. And I know we've, mention it a little bit, especially when you're talking about denial and defensiveness, but I wanted to um, give her opportunity to, to ask you a question. Yeah. Hey, Daniel. Hi, um, so like, like Tasha said, I do a lot of work with identity development. And so I'm just curious, I know in your book, you reference one of my favorite books that I'm always recommending to people all the time, um, Beverly Daniel Tatum's book, um, mm -hmm. Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And I was just wondering what part of your journey was influenced by learning about that process of white racial identity. How did that, how did that knowledge of identity formation shape your process moving forward? She tells this story that is so simple and it's so haunting to me, as you well know in it. But when she, when she introduced the idea of racial identity development or cultural identity development, she tells the story of two seventh grade girls, right? Um, a seventh grade African-American girl and a seventh grade white girl who are together in an integrated school. And she uses that as an example of how once in adolescence you start thinking about identity through the lens of culture and race, how these journeys tend to go in different ways, right? So um, it's she, so Dr. Dr. Tatum starts with the, the African-American girl. So she's sitting in her classroom with a, Tatum just calls him Mr. Smith. So Mr. Smith is a white teacher. He's a woke white teacher, you know, that's at this school because he cares about racial diversity. And so he's also the head of the school dance. And so um, he's telling everybody in the classroom that they should really come to the dance. And so he asked the seventh grade black girl if she's coming. She says no. So he really tries to sell her on it. So finally, she's very vulnerable. She confesses the reason she can't. She says, you know, this is an integrated school, but it's in a white neighborhood. So those of us who are black are here. We get bust in. Right. So if there's an extracurricular activity, we just can't do it. And so he's just tone deaf. He misses it. He keeps going, keeps trying to convince her. You know, she just tries to drop it. And so his last thing, he thinks he's being cute. He says, oh, come on. I thought all you people love to dance. Right. So Tatum kind of talks about how that comment just lands like a bomb on her. Right. Because she could never prove that Mr. Smith saw her as inferior to the white students. But that comment really lands in a way that makes her suspect that he sees her as different. Right. So she is she's just ready to burst into tears. So she goes on the search for her best friend, who just happens to be white. And up until this point, race is not a big part of their friendship, right? So she goes and tells this to her white friend. And the very first response by her white friend, it goes, oh, come on. Mr. Smith works at the school because he cares about all people. He's not a racist. Clearly, that's not what he meant. You're overreacting to it. And like in that moment, something just breaks inside that little black seventh grader's heart, right? Where it's like, if she would have shared anything else, her white friend probably would have just said, oh, man, that sounds terrible. Tell me more. But for whatever reason, it was hardwired in this white young white girl to say to give the benefit of the doubt to Mr. Smith immediately. Right. And to discredit any possibility that this narrative around racial superior and inferiority was part of how he was organizing his classroom. Right. And so she feels devastated, still loves her friend, still cares about his friend. But something happens during that moment. She says, when it comes to issues of race, I can't trust white people with this because they can't see. Right. And so their paths begin to go in different directions. And that black girl finds other black girls who can understand Maybe Mr. Smith meant it. Maybe he didn't. But the possibility has to be examined, right? She needs a safe place where that kind of stuff can be discussed. And the white girl probably innocently just kind of goes on oblivious to what happened. And um, that's where Dr. Tatum's story was so helpful for me to go. Like, it really is for the white person. There's so much wrapped up around learning to see what we can't see because it's not our own experience. And I feel like what she describes as a seventh grader is what was true of my friends in high school who didn't see. And it was true of my friends in college who couldn't see. And it's true of my 20-something friends who can't see. And it's true of my 40-something friends who can't see, right? And until Jesus disrupts our world enough to say, there are decades now of experiences that I haven't seen because it didn't negatively impact me, we have no chance to, I think, live in genuine, authentic community with people who do see this clearly and are affected by it on a daily basis. Yeah. So to follow up on that, um, you know, we also talked a little bit earlier 
touched on white fragility a little bit. Um, and, you know, we see it in that story come out in the white friend who dis her fragility shows in the way she dismisses her friend. Um, what are some other ways um, within church communities, particularly, that you see white fragility play out and um, the way you see it affect people um, who are trying to step into those spaces, whether they're people of color or you coming into a space trying to help open people's eyes to these realities? This is what I'd love. So, yeah, it's a uh, case viewers don't know if you're, of course, quoting Dr. Um, Robin D'Angelo, right? She's the one who coined yeah. it fragility. I would really be curious to hear her take on this. So I'm following what you're saying, and I want to answer the question. I actually wouldn't say that's white fragility, what the white girl did. I wouldn't say white fragility. I, I, I don't think that fragility shows up until we actually start interacting with this stuff. <laughs> I would say at this point, it's just still ignorance. It's still just chosen denial. Um, um, it's just obliviousness, right? And oftentimes chosen, but we're, we're, we're not even being pushed enough to have to can be considerate of fragility. So, uh, mm -hmm. but that might be, maybe she would, you know, so I'm not trying to answer that for her. I'd be curious, her take on that. We'll, have, be, we'll have to read her new book yeah. when it comes out this summer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> where I, where I see white fragility being particularly important is when white people actually, when a light bulb goes on. And I think this is another common mistake for us who are white. When a what light bulb goes on, this stuff is serious. We often treat that as an end point instead of a starting point. We think the light bulb means now that we see instead of saying like it's a beginning to a long journey, right? So when the light bulb goes off, the long journey begins. I think there's a sense of enthusiasm that carries us early on. But when we start to wrestle with these things, when we start to see how deep it goes, when we start to discover our own complicity with it, which I think is really hard, when we just start to discover that despite our best attempts to not be racist, We've internalized some of the white supremacy kinds of ideologies um, when we realize that we still have implicit biases towards people that we wish weren't there but are there. All of those things fatigue us, and disorient us, um, they disrupt kind of our worldview. And that's where I see white fragility being very, very serious. And in my own church, I have to be like, there's been some great, great white folks, and I don't want to diminish the ones who are doing this work. But more often than not, I see a white person who comes in hot saying, I'm here because I care about this. And 18 months later, they're out. And it's over, and it's over, and it's over, and it's over. And it's discouraging. And it's discouraging for me as a white person. I can only imagine it exponentially discouraging for others who are <laughs> wanting these people. That distrust. Yeah. So that's where I think the fragility becomes important, when the light bulb gets turned on, and you think you're now an ally or walking down this road. And then, I mean, there's just one, one wave of disorientation after another that comes from that point forward. And sometimes it is. It's just as simple as... You have the guts and the wherewithal to keep moving forward, even when you feel discouraged or feel confused or feel disoriented. I think that's so good. And I love, you know, I love when she asked that question. And I think this is something that we can all learn. Um, I see a constant decentering of yourself in, in this. And I think that's something that's really good that as you do this work of kind of deconstructing and understanding your inner your um, your identity and how it intersects with others. There's this constant decentering. So something, you know, one of the things you were, um, you know, just saying even in here, you said, you know, I don't, I don't, I would want to know what Robin D'Angelo um, would have to say about that because sometimes as we learn a lot of information and as we become experts in something, we don't remain teachable, you know, and when start, um, you know, in this work, especially as you become allies, and we've had people like this in a group, and, you know, as people become allies, sometimes they think they have all the answers, and they don't remain, that humility doesn't stay there, um, and so they start centering themselves again, so I know this is like a constant um, decentering, a, a constant process that you're learning, you know, um, to kind of give of yourself, but also give space, you know, um, for correction, for, for growth, for humility, not having all the answers. Um, do you find that difficult um, to do um, or has it really become more of a discipline for you? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I mean, I never love hearing, like, you know, so even just this last Sunday in the context of worship, I talked about, um, I quoted uh, Pastor D. McIntosh, one of my favorite pastors. She's a black female pastor in Minneapolis. And she had this great sermon on worship where she says that um, when we talk about expressiveness, sometimes we racialize it where like it's expected that black and Latino can be expressive, but we don't expect that out of everybody else. Mm -hmm. So I quoted her in the just in a very real time in worship. And I just happen to add, we don't ask that of white and Asian people, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the minute church ended, one of my close Korean American friends said, you know, 
I totally follow the spirit where you were going right there. But like when you just lumped all Asian people in like that, like that, mm-hmm. that's not your, like I came from actually a background where it's very expressive. Right. So to just lump all Asians in and lump them with whites, I think was a cavalier thing to kind of do, even though I totally know your heart. Right. So like everything in you wants to go, Oh, I didn't mean that. And I was trying to say this and I should be above that. And I said, right. But it's just like, that's just part. She loves me and she's totally supportive of me. Right. So this wasn't a, so therefore you're not qualified to do this anymore. It was just trusting that I'm going to continue to take the blindness society stuff seriously. Right. And that we've already got a practice kind of relationship where those things where that stuff is welcomed right so so i don't love it any more than you know like you never like hearing that once again you kind of stepped in a way that was not helpful for people um but i also a i know that i can't grow without that and b i I do think it's helpful to realize that for me it was important i came you know i I went to willow i I was under bill hybels right that's the old school of leadership you're supposed to know everything and take people there and lead them there and that's how i try to start with river city and that lasted about two weeks you know (laughs) it was when i started saying when i started embracing my blindness of sight that was when people of color started to trust me more and that was super counterintuitive to me that when i tried to act like i knew what i was doing nobody trusted me but when i kept embracing the fact that i'm on a journey blindness of sight like suddenly people willing to walk with me and so, I mean, that was 15 plus years ago. So I've come to truly believe that now that, I mean, I'm sure some people that doesn't work for, but the, 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 the wonderful comrades I have in this stuff don't follow me because they think I understand this stuff well. <laughs> they follow me because they trust my heart in this stuff to be humble and listen. And so that means a lot to me. And I never want to dishonor that by suddenly trying to act like I'm the chosen one or something. You know, I mean, that would just ruin everything we built. And two more questions before we uh, open it up for other people to ask questions. Um, I want, and those of you, if you have questions, you can go ahead and start posting them. Elizabeth is going to capture um, those. But I wanted to talk about chapter seven when you talk about shame and guilt. In our uh, Be the Bridge guide, you know, we have a section dealing with shame and guilt because that's one of the things that as people become more aware and acknowledge their, their understanding history, context, like all these things, there's this there's this shame and sometimes people start reacting out of that shame and that guilt i I want you to just talk a little bit about that and maybe giving um advice to people who are in that um process or that stage yeah yeah I, i i certainly went through that in a pretty intense way myself so i'm sympathetic to it um i'm also i can i've seen so many times how um um how it just completely shuts somebody down when they're in there, right? So, um, you know, it's she's become so top now, Dr. Brene Brown, right? Of course, everybody refers to her stuff on this, but I think the way she bottom lines it, where shame is kind of an identity thing, it's actually I am bad, whereas guilt gets more to I've done something bad or, you know, I participated in something bad, and how guilt can be a really positive motivator for growth, but shame never helps somebody grow. You get just kind of stuck in it. I think that language was helpful for me because actually I do think that's true. Shame is an identity word, right? Like you start to actually internalize as part of who I am. And though I'm sympathetic to it, what I want to say to somebody who's white on this, I'm like, I know this isn't why you're in the shame spiral, but you've completely centered yourself. If you're in a shame spiral, right? It's all about you now, right? It's all about the feelings you're having. Like um, my therapist will sometimes say, like when you get deep into something, emotions flood you and you can't think clearly, right? And so it's understandable, it's real, but you're being so flooded by your own emotions that you're completely unable to participate in the more important kind of work that has to happen. So I think that's the shift we've got to make is to say this stuff is heavy, it's hard. But it's conviction, right? And conviction moves us to learn and see different and act differently. And if I stay in shame, even though I'm not doing it for this reason, I'm actually making it all about me. And, oh, poor me. I can't believe this. And I don't want to be – right? And I'm not trying to belittle it all. Like, I'm talking from my own experience. But um, – um, so I don't want to oversimplify. Shame always requires some outside help to kind of break it. But it's a devastating kind of place to get stuck because we're just so non-helpful to anything when we're stuck in kind of a me-centered shame spiral. Yeah, I've been learning just from even um, a lot of our um, um, Asian brothers and sisters that, you know, that come from a shame culture. Um, But then, you know, so I've always thought negatively about shame and how it's about, you know, centering yourself. But then there's something um, that a friend of mine talked to me about, about a collective shame. And sometimes how collective shame, you know, when you think about Germany and you think about the Holocaust, there's a collective collective shame that a majority of Germans have about the history of Nazism, you know, about that that history. 
And so that collective shame, which um, for us, and you know, and when we think about this in um, the body of Christ of repentance and um, that, you know, that confession and repentance, um, that conviction that we feel, it moves us to this place of justice. And so I think about the systems that um, Germany has set up to kind of, you know, you can't wave a Nazi flag, you know, so there's something to this, um, you know, sometimes collective shame can be beneficial. Um, do you agree with that? I think I for sure agree with kind of what you're getting to, like there's some kind of a collective content, right? I mean, the work Brian Stevenson is doing around, you know, truth and reconciliation or the work Mark Charles is doing around truth conciliation. I, I so for sure. I do think this is just some of the challenge of this kind of work, right? Certain terms mean different things to different people, right? They don't have universal meanings in this work. And so, so the concept of what you're describing, I think for sure um, and I, I wouldn't doubt that in some circles, shame would be the correct term to use to describe that reality. I think in other circles, shame has got such a defined meaning now that it's just going to require a, a lot of work. Just linguistically, it's going to require a lot of work to move from that word to the reality that you're describing. And so there, I think that's some of our challenge in this work is to get to find ways to describe the reality we're trying to move to, you know, that God would have us to move towards and figure out which words and terms help us get there and which ones have to be redefined or which ones even have to be changed. So I certainly agree with the notion you're talking about of a collective sense of lament, consciousness, shame, if that's the right word, that right. we're really telling the truth about where we've come from and what's still true. I think that's absolutely critical. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so this last question, um, and on page 152, you talk about awakening um, white person. And, you know, I, I know you mentioned where I know a lot of pastors are dealing with this, where um, you have someone that has been on this journey and they become frustrated in that environment that they're in now. So you have that situation. And then you have the situation where um, people who have signed up and said, yes, I want to be a part of a church that has a value and a mission of reconciliation. But then when they get in this environment, they become undone um, in the midst of it. And then also you, you'll have white flight. So you have white flight happening for two different reasons. One, when um, you want to be part of a reconciliation church, has that as a, uh, a mission. But when it becomes too difficult, mm -hmm. there's white flight. And then you have people when they become really frustrated inside of environment, you have white flight. Can you kind of speak to that? You kind of talk about it a little bit in um, um, Awakening White Person, I think on page 152, a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I think I was following everything you're saying. Can, can, can you tell me the, the, the question, the, the, can you tell me the question again, like specifically which part of that you want me to take? To people, just speaking to people who are actually in an environment and where white flight is happening, um, you know, how do you, what what encouragement do you have for white people that are that's in an environment where there's reconciliation going on and it's difficult? Yeah. You know, what advice do you have for them? There's a little bit nuance if it's to the person who's like seeking to become part of that or to the white the leadership of over that. Which one are you asking? Like person, person that's seeking a, a congregational member. Yeah. Um, I think this probably comes back to some themes we've talked about. To me, the two just the absolute essential ingredients would be humility and resiliency. I would okay. say, um, I, I think there has to be humility not only in our own learning curve, but um, if sometimes things don't go the way you wish, or sometimes you know, there's just things that just I think it requires a humble spirit. And then um, I think the resiliency piece just is so key. I think there's got to at some point there has to be a deep, deep conversion that happens that this stuff is non-negotiable and that I'm just not going to walk away. Like that's some language we use at our, at our church is like, you just can't walk away from the table, right? When your feelings get hurt or when something gets mirrored back to you, you know, um, and it's a real loss when somebody walks away from the table. It of course happens still. Um, I, I guess what, this would open up a whole nother conversation, but just to say a word on it, I, I, I do think, um, What's the best way to say? I do think there should be a little bit of a testing process of who's ready for the deeper conversations, right? Like, I think we shouldn't be reckless with um, letting people all the way into that table right away. Like, I actually see, and this is a little bit of a different angle of what you asked, but I see one of the most important pastoral functions is to be protective of the people of color who have a call of reconciliation on their lives, mm -hmm. and then to be a, a bit of a 
gatekeeper for the white folks who say that they're interested in this stuff. Oh, and I don't want it to feel like in the early days, and this doesn't happen much in Mortem Gladwell, in the early days, there was actually a reputation that white people weren't welcome at River City, which was unfortunate. That's not, that should not have, they, that, that reflects poorly on my communication. Uh, I think where I've gotten better at is saying you're all welcome, but until you're serious about this, we have to be protective of the people that you're going to include in your own process. And um, th there needs to be some demonstration of seriousness to this stuff, you know, because it's just not worth the cost to mm. those who are going to walk with them in that journey. So I think there's an element of that too, right? Like, I think we need to demonstrate that we're serious about this before people are asked, you know, to give it themselves and even bleed on our behalf for our own educational journey. And what um, advice would you have for people of color who are listening to this? And we'll get to, we'll ask that question at the end um, for our white brothers and sisters. But what advice would you have to people of color who are in this, they're, um, they're frustrated, they're tired. Um, you know, a lot of times with bridge building, um, you're getting walked on from both sides. Um, you're trying to deal with your own personal trauma and then you're also trying to educate. So, um, you know, you feel like you're being stretched very thin and, you know, a lot of people, you know, self-care is an issue. You know, so many things. What advice would you give um, to people of color that are in this work? That seems like such an important question, but I feel like that would be so overreaching of me to try to answer for a person of color how to do self-care when I'm coming at this from a privileged position. So I appreciate the question. I think the only thing I'd say is thank, thank you for taking chances on us sometimes because I think there's work white people need to do that shouldn't involve people of color. But there does come a point for some of us who are white. Like I, I, I desperately needed a few folks to invest in my journey and to bleed on my behalf. And I think it's crazy to even have to have asked that of them. But I... I also couldn't have continued on this journey. So I'm thankful to people like you who do this um, and cheering you on as you help folks know how to be healthy in that. But yeah, I, I, would, I would feel, yeah, I don't know if I. <laughs> that's good. No, that's good. That's really good. You know, like, you know, I think one of the things we have to realize that is, you know, sometimes we can be demanding of people of color in this work. And the thing is, it's an honor to have people of color willing to lead in this work and i think we need to treat it as that well it's an honor to be invited one of my black female friends when i was early in this journey she was a pastor and i asked her just something i was trying to sort out racial and she just unexpectedly started crying she had never done that when we talked about this and of course i went i centered myself i said oh no that i say it not quite right that i say the wrong thing well could i have done that there? she said no 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 it's not this is not about you she said i just need you to understand this I am walking with you as you learn to see this stuff, but oftentimes I get re-traumatized by things I'm sharing. Like this yeah. isn't just intellectual knowledge. Like I'm reliving these things I'm teaching you. So I'll do it for your sake. But I just want you to see what you're asking them. What, what's to you just a everyday question to me can bring back like really hard memories. And like that stuck with me. Like I, it is an honor. And I have to see, like I'm actually oftentimes inflicting pain on somebody when they participate in my journey. And man, I I, I want to steward that carefully, you know, and make it worthwhile if I'm going to ask that of somebody. Yeah. So I think the awareness of knowing when you're draining someone and knowing like where sometimes you need to, as a person, if you're, if you're being educated by someone, you also should be pouring into their self-care too. You know, I think that's a way where you decenter yourself, where understanding that this is coming with a cause, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, you know, for that person, Color and and then investing in them into their self-care and understanding when they don't want to talk about every situation that happens. They don't want to get a text from you every time. So I think that's really good. But let's let's take a few questions um, from uh, Elizabeth. Sorry, give me one second. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> but as we, um, I know some of you uh, come online um, and we'll talk about a few more um, questions, but we're going to just take a few questions from people and then we'll kind of close it out with um, maybe um, Daniel giving us some, you know, giving like some advice to um, our white brothers and sisters as they continue to, um, um, to give Well, us. we've got a minute. Do you want me to touch on the whiteness 101? Oh, he's back. Never mind. <laughs> Even if he has to go at the end, we'll make sure that um, we stay on to do that. So, so Daniel, um, let's see. Elizabeth has a maybe. I, 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 
questions here. Yeah, um, let's see maybe just maybe um, one or two of those, or we'll see what we have time for. Okay, let's start with this then. Um, we have a lot of people in our community who are in all white suburban churches, and they are wondering what they do. What do they encourage their pastors to do? What would your advice be on that? I think it's an important, really great question. Um, and I, I try to say this fast. I actually think we have we have we care more about diversity than we should, and we don't care about dismantling race as much as we should. <laughs> um, and so I think we we reverse those. Um, and so, um, and actually, I think as individuals we do this too. So here's what I mean by that. Um, I think creating multicultural, multi-ethnic spaces is complicated. There's no question about that. Um, and if you look just at multi-ethnic spaces, it's a good conversation to have. It's hard to have different cultures together. It's hard to learn from different norms and experiences. Um, but that's very different than tackling the system of race. And the system of race is a social construct, which is its own whole conversation, I realize, but it's a social construct, i.e. not created by God, created by human beings, right? It's not very old in the grand scheme of things, probably 400 years old, and it's created literally to assign human value to people, right? That is the purpose of the system of race, is to say your value as a human being is determined by where you fall on the racial spectrum. And so Christians should be the first one. This is so sad. It's Secular society is much more advanced on dealing with race than the churches. The church should be at the lead because it's a profoundly, like I'm going to actually use the word demonic enterprise. It's demonic because it's built on a lie. It's built on a lie that human worth is not from the Imago Dei, from being created in God's image. It comes from the racial demonic, right? So the church should be on the front lines applying theology to this, saying here is why the very system we all abide by is an absolute affront to the heart of God. And here's the weird thing. Sometimes the hardest space to talk about that is in multi-ethnic settings. Mm. Because you spend so much work on trying to balance this carefully constructed ecosystem. And so I think the ideal is to marry them together. Like I think it's ideal if multi-ethnic spaces are talking about race because you're better positioned to talk about it. But honestly, if I was talking to a white, a white church, if you had to pick between trying to build a multi-ethnic space or build a culture that can honestly talk about the system of race, I would way rather a white church develop theology and vocabulary around what race is and why it's so diabolical and demonic. Like that would go so much further in society to have white people who understand both sociologically and more importantly, theologically, why it's problematic. And so I think we've, I think we've created kind of a fake carrot almost like that multi-ethnic is where we need to go. There's a lot of multi-ethnic spaces that are cool, but aren't really doing anything around race, you know? And so it's not an end in and of itself. Like the end, I think, is proclaiming God's truth towards the kind of demonic reality of the system of race. So that's what I'd say. Uh, I think, last thing on this, but I think it's important. I think the typical white person who's wrestling with this stuff underestimates how unwilling their church is to even have a basic conversation about what race is. I think... I think we think just saying stuff like this is, should be easy. White churches don't talk about this stuff because when they do, there's a ferocious kind of response by white congregants. And um, that would be a huge uh, endeavor forward if white churches could just have open conversations around why race is so diabolical. But just simply being able to tell the truth and why that's a lie would be a huge step forward. Um, but it probably would be costly. I can't think of a white church that's honestly talk about this stuff and didn't lose some folks, right? So it's like, I wish I could give a better pep talk on that, but it is a count the cost kind of a thing. Like it's so deep ingrained in our psyches that when you call it out for what it is, there is negative reaction in the white community. And it's not just the white community, that happens elsewhere too, but it's most pronounced within the white community. So I think just being able to name truth and lies, if somebody could start there would be a huge step forward in their church context. That's mm. really I would say if I, a real quick 30-second answer question to follow up on that. I'm not sure if I can do it in 30. Yeah, but yeah, you can see I'm oh. wounded. <laughs> so, so knowing knowing that that cost is there for um, particularly white pastors to speak out, to actually utter the words white supremacy in front of their congregation, um, do you see talking about race um, for white pastors as something that's just some pastors are called to that? Or is this – do you see – is there some kind of issue with white pastors staying silent because they don't feel like that's that's their issue, it's their thing? Yeah, I mean, Jesus fundamentally defined discipleship, right? Is pick up your cross and follow me, right? And the cross is an instrument of death, right? I mean, I, I, mean, I think that there's a deeper and even theological problem in that we don't have a theology that addresses this. That's actually where I'm continuing. In white circles, that's actually what's 
the most basic kind of thing. People are going, I never saw it in scriptures before. I'm like, how did you never see it? But that's an endemic problem. And, you know, and I think there's a history around that, right? I think we dodged around theologically to justify colonialism and justify slavery. And we're still paying the price for that. So, so I would say it's an absolute gospel issue. I think how we respond that can, there can be difference there. You know, what it means for a particular generation. I think there can be difference there. Um, proclaiming the sinfulness of the system of race is an absolute gospel thing. I don't think, I don't know how you can seek first the kingdom of God. <laughs> and not deal with race in the, in this day and age. It's just, I don't even think it's literally not possible to see God's kingdom. Not deal with this. Repeat that one more time. Say that last sentence. <laughs> I don't see how you can say that again. It's a secret the kingdom of God, right? You, you cannot pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven without dealing with race. You cannot seek first the kingdom of God without confronting the system of race. It is impossible. So, yeah, I would, I would absolutely say if somebody never talked about this, their church, it's an, it's an incomplete, it's an incomplete gospel. They are not talking about the kingdom of God in this day and age. There's no way they could be without dealing with the system of race. And the church said, amen. That's good. <laughs> um, do you have time? We have, well, we have like three minutes before we have to get off. Uh, Elizabeth, do we have one more or, or we can just, is there one quick one? Yeah. Um, what, so it's, you know, a lot of people are starting to have conversations with their friends and in their circles. And one of the hardest places they're coming up against having these conversations is with family. Um, so I'd just like to hear about your experiences or any advice you have to offer white people who are, they're waking up to this, to the realities surrounding race, and they're trying to talk to their families. And those are much more complicated relationships. Um, how do you go about having really difficult conversations with family members on this topic? How have you done that? It's not easy. I mean, it's certainly been my experience as well. Um, yeah, I, this is not something that the rest of my family is deeply in tune with. It's a very nice way to say it, but I'm trying to be prepared for them to watch this broadcast. Uh, um, so so I, I think that um, there's, there's a couple different things to it. For one, it's always easy to just move away from people who don't agree with us. Um, but again, in a weird way, it's kind of centering ourselves. We actually think we're being woke when we kind of distance ourselves from the people who we see as regressive on this. But that's actually centering ourselves because we don't want to have to deal with the fatigue of having to sit at the table with them. And so I, I would also say, I'd say the other aspect of it is society needs those kind of white people to shift on this. We need people to move. And it's an impossible ask to ask people of color to come into our family circles and be the ones who try to move the needle with that. So yeah, not, not self-righteous, not the, the thinking that we're the Messiah, but we have to stick with our the people in our circles. And just sometimes that just means being quiet from it and saying a prayer going, man, that just burned me. Sometimes that's going to a dinner that you don't want to go to. Sometimes it's stepping in when you're a peacemaker and you don't want to step in. You know, I don't want to be super formulaic, but I think staying present and being engaged, I think it's something we have to do for the larger movement. Um, we have to keep staying present in spaces and hoping. And I'll say one other thing, because this just came up. We just did a series in the book of Acts at, at, at our church. And something that jumped out to me in a way that's never jumped out to me before, you know, this, the apostle Saul, or Saul, you know, goes through this huge conversion, right? That's very famous in there. One of the things that stood out to me is the fact that apart from a supernatural act of God, he was never going to change, right? Mm. He absolutely dug in, right? And it was from a religious perspective that he dug in. It wasn't the outside. He was certain he was on the right side. And we can all see he was on the wrong side, but he was certain he was on the right side. And what, no conversation was going to change it, mm. right? It wasn't until Jesus Christ supernaturally said, you're on the wrong side of this, that he changed. So I do think, I don't say this as like some kind of a churchy answer. I think prayer is a huge piece of this too, right? We need supernatural revelation. There are people who are certain they're on the right side and they're not, they're on the wrong side. Um, but it's not going to matter how many conversations it's going to need God to change them. So I think there's a revival. All my white, all my white Christians want a revival. They just don't understand what it means. <laughs> they have to repent of white supremacy before the revival is going to happen. Right. But I think it's true. I think there needs to be repentance and revival. And there's a part yeah. of that the spirit of God can do, and we can cooperate with that through prayer. So I think that's an element of this as well. Yeah. I, lo I love it. You, you know, we talk about this also in the guide when we talk about um, reconciliation, we talk about, um, you know, the process of reparation, um, restoration and reproduction. And in that, you know, um, through that process of reconciliation, we will have revival, but there's not going to be any revival without recon reconciliation, you know? Um, and so that's, that's a good point. And so before we end, just one thing, what, you know, we have a lot of, um, 
white people in our Be The Bridge group. Um, this, this, we're doing it on um, our Facebook page so that it can be shared because when we do conversations like this in our Be The Bridge group, um, we can't share them outside. And so a lot of times people want to share this with their pastors or with their family members posted on their page. And so we do it outside of the Be The Bridge group so that people can share it. Um, but within the Be The Bridge group, we have a lot of people and predominantly white people. And so what advice, just just some just some quick advice that you would, if you could share a last word um, with our white brothers and sisters that are in this work, that are listening, that have pulled up a chair and, you know, they're saying, Lord, change me. Um, what would you say to them? I think it's the prayer that gets repeated by so many different people in the New Testament, by the blind folks who say, Lord, help me to see. Right? Mm -hmm. I think we have to see how it's impacted us personally, how we can understand ourselves, the narrative of racial difference and the ideology of white supremacy. I think we have to be, we have to keep doing interrogation on how it's affected the way we see other people. And then the, the gradual level work, I think, is learning how to see how this narrative has shaped social systems in the way that it's kind of created this kind of imbalanced and unequal and devastating kind of reality in every single social sector. And I think the cool thing about seeing is once you've seen something, you can't unsee it. It's not just about a list of doing the right things. It's once you see something, you cannot see it anymore. But but then there's more to see, right? And so we need the spirit of God to lead us, and we need our the, those who are willing to invest in our process that are not white to help us to see it. And I think if we just keep following that thread, like Lord, help me to see that which I don't see, you know, it'll take us continue to take us into new territory. Yeah. Well, on behalf of um, this black sister right here. <laughs> I want to thank you for writing this book. I know um, it was probably difficult and I know you've had, you know, had to face backlash with, you know, just speaking out and standing in that truth. You know, I know a lot of pastors who are in this, you know, their churches don't grow like everyone else's church is growing, you know, because they they really they're counting the cost of what this means and they're really truly living out the gospel. Um, so I want to say thank you for creating a tool um, to educate, you know, our brothers and sisters so that we can really, really um, do this work of um, conciliation and what that, what that can look like. And, um, you know, what that can mean for the body of Christ. So I want to thank you for being courageous. Thank you for not giving up. And, um, you know, thank you for um, just leaning in and not letting the conversation about culture, not knowing something, um, stifle you or take you out of the conversation, but it charged you to step into the conversation. So thank you, brother. It's been great um, speaking with you. Thank you for listening to this Be The Bridge production. For more bridge building resources, visit our website at bethebridge.com.